Good morning. I'm Greg Allison. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. This simple children's verse intros well our topic for this morning. The sermon series in which we've been engaged over the last five weeks marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The five solas, a Latin term we translate alone or only, the core theological truths that mark us out as Protestants. Just for a quick review, the five solas are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, and today's topic, Scripture alone. How does God rescue us broken people? By God's grace alone, received by faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is our salvation. This is our justification, which is the material principle of Protestantism, the main content, the main belief of the Reformation, that God declares us not guilty, but righteous instead, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Why don't we believe, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that God justifies us by infusing grace into us through baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, a grace that's infused into us that then transforms our very nature so that in love we can engage in good works so as to earn eternal life. Why don't we believe that? As rescued people, as justified people, why don't we adhere to prohibitions like no dancing, no rock music, no epidurals when giving birth? Why don't we follow rules and regulations like we must homeschool our children and eat only organic foods and claim John Calvin as our homeboy? Why don't we believe those things? The answer to these questions is today's fifth sola, sola scriptura, scripture alone. This formal principle of Protestantism provides the foundation and the framework for the four solas that we've just covered. Indeed, this formal principle of sola scriptura provides the foundation and framework that for everything that we do here at Sojourn Church. And so to begin by addressing this topic, I'm going to go with a very big context, and then we're going to work our way towards a more specific point. The big context is this. The Lord is a speaking God, and he is a present God. 
Indeed, God's speaking is connected with him being present with us, his people. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to creation. God spoke the universe and everything in it into existence. All that exists is the product of the creative breath of God. So God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. In fact, 10 times God speaks and the world and everything in it is created. And so the psalmist underscores by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. These 10 divine words created in space and time a place for God to be present with the masterpiece of his creation. At the apex, at the highlight of God's creative work stands human beings, creaturely beings that are unique from all the rest of creation by virtue of the fact that we are created in the image of God. Among many things, being created in the image of God means that we are capable of being addressed by God And we are capable of addressing God. That is, God speaks to us and we, his image bearers, are able to understand and respond to his words. And we speak to God. As the one who gave us the gift of speech, he understands our words and he engages with us. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man Adam saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Following Adam and Eve's disobedience to this clear spoken command, God engages the two to expose their sin. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you've done? God then exacts the penalty with which he warned the two should they go the way of rebellion. He curses Eve and Adam and indeed the entire created world. Specifically, the spoken words of curse banish Adam and Eve from the presence of the Lord. Following this fall into sin, and its devastating effect, not only on Adam and Eve, but all subsequent image bearers, including you and me, we might have expected for God to go silent. That's what I do when people fail me. Go silent. No more words. But thankfully, God is not like me. 
and God does not retreat into silence. He graciously takes the initiative to speak and to act for our redemption, to rescue us from separation from him and to reestablish his presence with us. An example is found in Genesis 12. God commands Abram to leave his country and his kindred and to travel to an unknown destination. And God speaks and promises Abram that Abram will become a great nation and a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abram obeys God's spoken command. And Abram believes God's spoken promise. What about that promise? Which for your years is not coming to fulfillment. Abram speaks to God. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham, Abram speaks again. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look to the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And God said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is Abram's salvation. This is Abram's justification by grace alone. Abram and Sarah, as good as dead, childless and incapable of bringing forth a physical offspring, contributed absolutely nothing through faith alone. The only posture that Abram could adopt was to believe because he could not merit, he could not earn what God was promising to do for him. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the promise of God alone, not in some human solution like Eliezer, the servant. God speaks a word of promise. And Abram believes God's word. So the gift of speech not only enables us to speak about and to one another, it also enables us to speak about God and to God, who speaks about us and to us. And speech is no obstacle. It's no barrier to our relationship with God. Indeed, and by contrast, speech is at the very heart of our relationship with the Lord. At some point, God decided to express this gift of speech in a concrete manner through a written word. The Hebrew Bible, the sacred scriptures, of the Jews, what we call our Old Testament, 
described by Paul as being inspired or God-breathed. This creation was the product of the creative breath of God. So scripture also is the product of the creative breath of God, specifically inspired by the Holy Spirit. As we read in 2 Peter, the biblical authors moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is why I love this quote from Kathleen Nielsen. As we lean together over a biblical text to study it, we are in effect leaning into, leaning in close to the breath of God. As for us now, long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So all former divine speech, both oral and written, was anticipatory. It was preparatory, pointing unfailingly to the coming of the Son of God incarnate. So we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal Word of God, through whom God created the world and everything in it, took on the fullness of human nature and became incarnate in Jesus Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. Again, God's word is oriented toward him being present with us to overcome the separation with us and to reestablish his presence among us, his people. Indeed, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was spoken and promised long ago. As we read in our scripture reading this morning, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, there's Jesus' humanity, and was declared to be the son of God in power, his deity, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption on our behalf, God decided to expand on what was already his written word. So now we have the New Testament. Again, the product of the creative breath of God, specifically of the Holy Spirit, engaging the apostles like Matthew and John, Paul and Peter and other authors associated with the apostles, like Mark, Luke, and Jude. Our speaking God will to communicate with us, his people, through a written word. God will to communicate with us through his written word, inspired 
by the Holy Spirit so that he would be ever present with us, his people. There are six implications of God communicating to us through his word, through a written word. Number one, scripture is not a barrier to our relationship with him. It's not a barrier to our relationship with him. Indeed, we affirm the clarity of scripture. God communicates in such a way that we can understand his speech. Two, scripture is not inaccurate, misleading, or wrong. Indeed, we affirm the truthfulness or inerrancy of scripture. Whatever scripture affirms is true because it is the speech of our truth-telling God. Third, scripture is not an optional way of God communicating with us. Indeed, we affirm the necessity of scripture. We need scripture like we need our daily food. As Jesus reminded us, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Fourth implication, scripture is not one word among many words, nor is it under or inferior to other words. Indeed, we affirm the authority of Scripture because the one who speaks is authoritative. Scripture possesses divine authority. Thus, to believe Scripture is to believe God himself. To obey Scripture is to obey God himself. To disbelieve Scripture is to disbelieve God himself. To disobey scripture is to disobey God himself. Fifth, scripture is not inadequate or incomplete, nor does it play a supporting role in God's relationship with us. Indeed, we affirm the sufficiency of scripture. Though it is not exhaustive, communication, telling us everything there is to know about God and his ways. It is adequate for saving us, for equipping us for every good work so that we can be fully pleasing to God. Sixth and last implication of God communicating to us through a written word, scripture is not impotent or ineffective. Indeed, we affirm the power of Scripture. As the all-powerful God says of his speech, the word that goes out from his mouth, quoting Isaiah 55, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the clarity of Scripture and the authority and necessity, sufficiency, truthfulness, and power of the word of God. So Timothy Ward affirms, God has invested himself in his words, or God has so identified himself with his words that whatever someone does to God's words, 
they do directly to God himself. Why do we affirm sola scriptura? Why do we hold this as one of the core truths of our faith? A brief tour of the history of sola scriptura. Because of what scripture says about itself, that it is the authoritative, sufficient word of God, the early church, we're going back 2,000 years ago, the early church maintained that true belief must be established from Scripture. And any belief that contradicts Scripture is wrong. It's, it's heresy. Right practice must be based on Scripture. And any practice that contradicts or conflicts with Scripture is wrong, is sin. Now, the early church also developed a role for tradition, its early beliefs, its early creeds about the Trinity and Christ. It formulated this tradition in defense against heresies like Gnosticism and denials of the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. But this tradition, notice small t tradition, was not considered to be a supplement to Scripture. Tragically, the medieval Roman Catholic Church added another tradition, now capital T tradition, added capital T tradition to Scripture and affirmed that both are modes of one divine communication. Tradition includes Christ's teaching, which he orally communicated to his apostles, who in turn orally communicated that teaching to their successors, the bishops of the Catholic Church, which in turn protects, nurtures, and occasionally proclaims this teaching. Considering capital T tradition as a mode of divine revelation, the Catholic Church denied that Scripture is authoritative and sufficient for salvation and godly living. No, there are doctrines to be believed and there are behaviors and good works to be practiced that are revealed in tradition but not found in Scripture. For example, the Catholic Church affirms transubstantiation, that a priest during the Mass, when he calls upon the Holy Spirit, and when he recites the words of Jesus as he's inaugurating the Lord's Supper, when the priest engages in these two activities, the substance of the bread is changed or transubstantiated into the very body of Jesus Christ. The same thing with the substance of the wine. It is changed or transubstantiated into the very blood of Jesus Christ. And Catholics must believe this. Later, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do not engage in transubstantiation. Catholics must confess their sins to a priest at least once a year. They must participate in the sacrament of the Eucharist at least once a year. They must believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, that in the moment of her conception, she was preserved free from original sin. They must believe that Mary at the end of her days, rather than her body being sloughed off and put in a tomb, that body was assumed or taken into heaven. The Immaculate Conception of Mary, the bodily assumption of Mary. These are beliefs and their practices 
that are found in capital T tradition, but that are not found in Scripture. Against this insistence of the Catholic Church's tradition, the Reformers like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin formulated the Protestant principle of sola scriptura. So let's define what we mean. A definition of sola scriptura, scripture and scripture alone, authoritatively and completely equips us for knowing God and faithfully and obediently doing his will. Scripture and scripture alone, authoritatively and completely equips people for knowing God and faithfully and obediently doing his will. So scripture is the church's ultimate and sufficient authority for what it believes, what it practices, its worship, and its ministry. This principle did not entail disregard for the wisdom from the church's past, but this small t tradition, like the early church creeds, is ministerial. It serves, but it never supplements Scripture because Scripture is the church's ultimate and sufficient authority. Let's land the plane. What are some takeaways from Sola Scriptura? Buckle your seatbelt. Number one, Sola Scriptura should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us think about a particular issue or do in a particular situation. It should encourage us, encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or to do. Let's be frank. We face scores of contemporary issues and moral dilemmas that vex us deeply gender identity and dysphoria, homosexuality, racial tensions and reconciliation, political engagement, all these things. What Sola Scriptura encourages us to do is to pour over Scripture and find out what God has said about whatever these matters are. And when we've consulted all of the relevant passages that address our concerns, then let's go to the action. We don't have to keep looking over our shoulder, waiting for God to reveal more. But, 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 but what if God has more to say about this matter? God has authoritatively and sufficiently addressed it in his word. Second takeaway, sola scriptura reminds us that we are to add nothing to scripture and that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. This is the warning that we find at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, 18. Don't add to and don't subtract from Scripture. This is why we as Protestants in our Old Testament, we don't have the apocryphal writings, extra books that are found in the Roman Catholic version of the Old Testament, books like Judith and Tobit, First and Second Maccabees. We don't have those. We don't consult the Book of Mormon, trying to figure out how to live. And we don't pay attention to Sarah Young's book, 
Jesus calling. Maybe I'm stepping on some toes. Sarah Young claims that Jesus speaks words to her and then she writes down those words in books and millions and millions of people are paying attention to Jesus calling rather than the Bible. That's a denial, a serious denial of sola scriptura. Third, sola scriptura tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work that is not found in scripture. God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work that is not found in scripture. God helps those who help themselves. We don't believe that. It's not required for us to believe that. You know where that line comes from? Page one, Swiss Family Robinson. Not the Bible. Not even Second Hesitations 3.16. Or how about when I sin, I need to do something beside confessing my sins in order to get back into God's good favor. You do that, you sin, you confess your sin, you repent of it, but then you feel guilty or shame and you go, I, I, I want to get back into God's good graces. There's something I need to do. Now, Scripture says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fourth, Sola Scriptura shows us that no modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. No modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. I don't know what you believe about the gift of prophecy, God's continuing gift of prophetic words, whatever you believe about that, if you believe that God continues to do that, those prophetic words can never mount up to have the same level of authority as Scripture or have a higher authority. They must always be under Scripture. And I certainly want to encourage you to listen to God in personal experience as you seek his guidance and direction. But those words of personal address can never mount up to the same level of Scripture or take priority over Scripture. You always must be under the Word of God. Fifth, Sola Scriptura reminds us that nothing is sin that, that nothing is sin that is not forbidden in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. Nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. Now, I could nuance this for an hour, but I don't have that amount of time. Follow me. What I'm talking about, the nasty nines, the terrible ten, the dirty dozen, right? Legalistic framework that adds to the list of sins as found in Scripture. We imagine that we can be more holy and pleasing to God if we avoid committing these additional sins. They're not sins, but we think this way. For example, more tightly the seatbelt, Scripture does not prohibit taking medication for anxiety and or depression. Scripture does not prohibit celebrating Advent, as we will for the next few weeks. It does not prohibit observing Ash Wednesday. 
Scripture does not prohibit drinking alcoholic beverages. Scripture does not prohibit traveling in a car with someone of the other sex who is not your spouse. Scripture does not prohibit these things. But because of your background, your experience, the contemporary climate in our society, past personal sins, many reasons, you may decide not to do these things. Your conscience forbids you. So don't engage in these things. If you do, you violate your conscience and you sin. Not because you've engaged in a sinful activity. None of those things is a sinful activity. But you sin because you violate your conscience. And remember, if you decide not to engage in these activities, you are not more holy than others. Sixth, sola scriptura tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. Nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. You must be a card-carrying Republican in order to become a Christian. God does not require that. You must homeschool your children. God's word does not require that. You must eat organic food only. Scripture does not require that. You may be a Republican. You may homeschool your children. You may eat only organic food. That's fine. But Scripture does not require that. Seven. Sola Scriptura reminds us that in our teaching, preaching, mentoring, discipling, we should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes. In our preaching, teaching, mentoring, we should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes, the major themes of Scripture, that we know and love and worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son, fully God and fully man, who died on the cross and was resurrected for our salvation, the church which announces this gospel and so forth. We focus on these matters Eighth and last, Sola Scriptura urges us that we must care more about what God thinks or says about us in Scripture than what people think or say about us. We must care more about what God thinks or says about us in Scripture than what people think and say about us. I'm an Enneagram 9 I'm a peacemaker, but I become unresourceful when I avoid difficult situations out of fear that people won't like me. Or I become unresourceful when I try to bring people together in ways other than the unity that God prescribes in Scripture. These are eight takeaways from Sola Scriptura. In conclusion, then, here are the five solas. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. The glory of God alone. Scripture alone. 
Sola Scriptura is the foundation and framework for everything we do here at Sojourn. And we celebrate this fact on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This is why in our preaching, we preach Scripture. This is why in our CGs, our community groups, we orient our discussion around the sermons. In women's Bible study, the women studied Paul's letter to the Colossians last semester, upcoming this next semester, a study of Psalms. Men's Bible study, studied 1 Samuel, finishing up 2 Samuel. Next semester, Ecclesiastes. Equip classes. Here's the big reveal coming in February, right? Equip classes, all based on Scripture. Topics of gender, finances, mercy, and parenting all in accordance with the word of God. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Karl Barth, arguably the most important 20th century theologian, was asked to summarize his whole life's work in one sentence. Here was his reply. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible is all about Jesus. And so we conclude this sermon about sola scriptura by celebrating the Lord's Supper, the supper that Jesus established for us as an enacted, tangible word that visibly and powerfully portrays his sacrificial death on the cross. Listen to Jesus' words of institution. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we use very powerful elements that affect a symbolism that grips us. We take a loaf of bread and we break it, vividly portraying the broken body of Jesus Christ his broken body for us. And we take a cup of wine, which vividly portrays the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his blood shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. And then we stream forward and we participate in that bread and the wine, symbolizing our trust in the work of Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood on our behalf as the church of sojourn. If you're a Christian, we encourage you to participate in this sacred and symbolic meal. Come up forward, take a piece of the bread, and then dip it in either wine or grape juice. Each one is marked, whatever your conscience permits. Take and eat it immediately. 
Eat it with a thankful heart for Jesus' work of salvation on your behalf. Gluten-free will be at the center lane. If you're not a Christian, we urge you not to participate in this sacred and symbolic meal because it does not yet symbolize what's true of you. Rather, we urge you to take Jesus Christ who offers you his broken body and shed blood. He offers you his salvation. Will you join me in prayer?